In fact, I invite you, if you like, to stand with me while I read verses 4 through 17. I'm reading from the NIV translation of the Bible, one of many good English translations we're blessed to have. Genesis 2, 4 through 17 says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. You may be seated. Our Father and God, our prayer this morning is the same as it is every week. We are overjoyed and rejoiced to gather together. This is a good gift, and we pray, Lord, that you would continue to give us good gifts in communicating your word to us and sending your spirit and filling us with your spirit to understand and apply what you would say to us this morning. So speak clearly, we pray, may we respond in praise. And we pray the same thing for those kids gathering in children's church and for all those watching at home who couldn't be here with us, Lord. Wherever the sound of your gospel goes, may people respond in praise. The Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Have you ever felt like you're using all your time and energy on the wrong things? That's how one famous sculptor felt in the early 1500s. He'd been working on a painting for four years. and It was proven to be torture for him. He did not feel painting was his primary calling. The project was taking too long, it was starting to take a toll on his health, and he wrote to his friend, I'm not in the right place. I am not a painter. That painter in question is Michelangelo. The painting he was working on by commission of the Pope was the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. This not a painter, Michelangelo took four years to complete the painting on the ceiling, and the end result is one of the world's most famous and enduring works of art. And you may remember one famous depiction in the Sistine Chapel called The Creation of Adam. It's a depiction of God and Adam arms outstretched to each other. It's meant to depict God giving Adam life. Some, some scholars and 
People who theorize on this even think that uh, this was meant to depict the moment that God gave Adam intelligence because the angels and the cherubim and the robes that surround God are in the, the outline of a human brain. That's what one of the theories is. But it's meant to describe what is depicted here in Genesis 2, this moment where God gives humanity life or creates Adam. And really what God does here is he creates not only Adam, but he creates all that Adam needs, all that humanity needs is given here. We have the famous hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, and in one chorus of that hymn we sing, All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. And that's what's going on here in Genesis 2. All that we need, God has given. All that we need, God has given. In the creation of Adam, not only did God give life to humanity, he gave everything that humanity needs to live. He left nothing out. This uh, scene is a scene of care for his creation. We zoom in on the creation story. So we've already gone through Genesis 1, the seven days of creation. That is kind of a, a big picture, a summary prologue of all of creation. And now Genesis 2 looks at that creation uh, story from a different perspective. It kind of starts anew and looks at it from a more narrative account. You'll notice that Genesis 2.4 begins the phrase, this is the account of, or these are the generations of. Whenever you see that in Genesis, that phrase, this is the account of, these are the generations of, that's a note that a new chapter is starting in the book of Genesis, a new section. So here in Genesis 2, we have a new section in the story of creation, and now we're getting into detail of how God created Adam and Eve in the garden and all that is in it. And as we read that story, what we see is that all we need, all that we need, God has given. That's my main point to you, and I want to prove it with three points. I want to show you that God has given us all that we need. First, in verses 4 through 7, very simply, very basically, God gave us life. Right from the outset, God has given us life. He gave us life. Without God, we don't have life at all. So right at the very beginning of the creation account, we are dependent on God to give us even the breath that we breathe. Look at verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Just as a side note, as we go through this whole passage, you'll, you'll notice kind of a specific name for God here that's used over and over again, the Lord God, the Lord God. More than anywhere else in Scripture, in Genesis 2 and 3, this name of God is used. L-O-R-D capitalized, which means Yahweh. That's the personal name of God that he gives later to Moses, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, and then Elohim, God. And combined together, Lord God kind of emphasizes the fact that God is a personal name. He's the God who comes and relates to his people. And also he's God, the creator. Elohim, it's the God who is both creator and personal. And that Lord God made all things. Now, as we get here, we notice something kind of interesting. There's no shrubs, no plants, it says. Why? Because there's no rain yet, and that's an ominous note. If you know the story of Genesis, rain's coming. But it's not here yet. And... There are no humans yet to work the ground. This is interesting because Genesis 1 says that vegetation 
and plants and all that came first, day three, then humans came in day six. And now we're saying there's no plants yet because the humans need to be created first. And if you look at those, you go cross-eyed and say, how can that be? How does this work? Well, you could answer that by saying Genesis 1 is not meant to be strictly chronological. That's one way of answering that. So it's just giving a summary, and now we're getting into a more accurate chronology here in Genesis 2. Or it could just be saying there was wild vegetation, there were wild plants, but there weren't cultivated shrubs and trees and plants the way we know them now because man was not yet there to cultivate the ground. Either way, it's not really the main point. The main point is God had given creation. He had created a place but was needed now as a person. And God forms this person, this man. His name is Adam. Adam is the Hebrew word for man. There's a play on words here because the Hebrew word Adamah means from the soil, from the dirt. Literally, Adam's name is dirt, soil. And notice how God made this man. He formed him, he fashioned him out of the ground. So Genesis 1 talks about God speaking things into existence. And now we get here and it's God forming and fashioning. Kind of get the picture of a potter at a wheel forming clay into something. And God forms the man out of dirt. So does that mean then that humanity is just a lump of dirt? Or just flesh, just matter? No, because what does God do next? He breathes life into the man. He makes him a living being. God, by his very spirit, breathes soul. That's what living being means, soul. God gives this man this formed dirt, now gives him a soul. He's a living being. And, and from this picture, I think we get our most basic and fundamental and essential definition of what humanity is. Both matter and spirit. Both body and soul, material and immaterial, joined together. Another way to look at it is we are creatures of the earth made in the very image of God. This has huge implications for how we understand humanity. We are body and soul, material and immaterial. Because we are material, because we are body, it means we're going to have weakness. There will be limitations on us. Remember Psalm 103, what the psalmist says. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The psalmist looks back on the creation of Adam and humanity and says, God knows who you are. He remembers your dust. God has mercy. He knows you have limitations. Do we know we have limitations? recognize that all of us have breaking points. We have limitations. We are not gods. We are creatures. So we should not be surprised at those moments where we feel weak. Nor should we be surprised when others are weak and we expect them to be strong, and they're not. As 
part of our humanity, not necessarily sinfulness, but certainly limitations, weakness, is part of who we are as people. We are material, we're body, we have limitations. And yet at the same time, we also have the very breath of God in us. That's what makes us alive and living, that we have this ability to think and to reason and feel. We are made personal beings. And if we're personal beings, I would suggest to you that means that we were created by a personal God. And we've talked about this, right? Rocks don't just come alive. Inanimate things don't just develop souls. That's not how that works. If we are personal beings, if we have the... God-given wonderful ability to think and to reason and to feel, to make choices and to do incredible things as thinking, soulish, soul-having people, that had to come from somewhere. It had to come from a personal God. Only a personal, knowing being, a living being, could create living beings. And that's what God has done with us. And I would just suggest the fact that we are living beings proves that there is a living God. It's the only way to account for our existence. God created us body and soul. Those things are linked. This is why you get cranky when you're hungry. It's a spiritual response to a physiological state. Right? Those things are connected. Our body and soul are linked together so they affect one another and vice versa. Your spiritual and emotional state will be affected by your physical state and vice versa. So when we are down, it may be that both body and soul need to be treated. I'm not necessarily saying that you can heal all physical ailments by the power of positive thinking. Don't hear me say that. What I am saying is, as weak creatures, and when we come across troubles, don't forget to inspect both body and soul because they are linked together. And there's a reason James, in his letter, when he tells people to when they're sick, they ask for prayer. In fact, he says, call the elders, come and pray for you. And then James in his next breath mentions repentance of sin. Because physical and spiritual ailments are often linked together. We are made body and soul linked together. And we owe God our very existence. He is the one who made us and gave us life. So, there may be times in our weakness, in our frustrations in life, we may go and complain to God. And we have the right, I think, and the freedom to do that. I think even the Psalms give us a playbook for how we go to God and cry out to him. But as we do that, we remember we're using the mouth he made. As we go to God and complain about the state of things, and why aren't you there, and what's going on, and where are you, just remember that you're using the breath that God gave you. That in every condition of life, whether the happiest condition or the worst condition, in all of it, there's never been a moment where you aren't a creation of God. 
dependent upon him for your very existence. And it is God's grace, God's gift, his goodness that has given us all of life. God gave us life, and then second, he gave us a home. That's what scripture is talking about in verses 8 through 14. God gave us a home. He gave us a, a perfect dwelling place. Uh, God didn't just create humanity to kind of exist in, in a void in a space, but he planted him. God created a home. He gave us a home to live in. I'll again read verses 8 through 14. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havila, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin, or as some of your translations will say, bdellium, and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. It's the account of the creation of the Garden of Eden, the famous Garden of Eden. The gar- the Eden is kind of the larger area, and there is a garden in Eden, the east of it. Now, word for Eden is kind of an interesting one. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible translates Eden, paradison. So, sounds familiar? Paradise. Where we get that. And that's what it was created to be. It was created to be a paradise, a perfect place. And all around Eden were four rivers, These rivers that are named, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing them correctly, as is the case with all Hebrew words, who knows? Pishon, Gihon, Tigris, Euphrates. Two of those rivers, we know where they are, Tigris and Euphrates. The other two, total mystery. Which is why we haven't been able to locate where was the garden. There's all sorts of theories, but nobody knows for sure. So if you read somebody who says, I've got it figured out, immediately doubt them. There have been uh, speculations Christopher Columbus momentarily thought he found a couple of these rivers in South America, though at the time he thought he was in Asia, so we're not sure about that. 19th century century author suggested the garden was in the North Pole. He said that the rivers flowed down, so where did they flow from? The top. That makes sense. One British general suggested that he found the Garden of Eden on an island in the Indian Ocean. I think he just found a really nice island and said this must be it. So nobody really knows for sure. I think we have a... General idea, judging by where Tigris and Euphrates are, that this was in Mesopotamian Central Asia by the Persian Gulf, likely in the Iraq-Turkey area. Probably where this was, right? We don't know for sure. But the point is, it was a perfect place and blessed with life and wealth. The rivers that flowed into it brought life. That's what rivers do. They gave it life and health. And then there's these materials of wealth, of gold and uh, aromatic resin or bdellium and onyx. But the point is, there are precious stones there. There's the raw materials from which to build wealth out of and build a society. So God has created this perfect place and he has built potential into it. You can take it and form it and create a perfect society, a perfect place out of it. And when you think of garden, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Flowers and plants and trees and nature, right? Like that. That's the first thing that comes to mind. That's good. That's probably what you should think of first. Is 
And that's what's there, we read. There is all sorts of vegetation and plants pleasing to the eye, delicious to eat. There is sustenance there, things to eat in that garden. And what we find is that God, again, gave humanity everything they need, and humanity would be totally dependent on God for this life. God gave it. We as people are dependent on God to receive it. We get our life and our health from him. He's the one who gave it in the first place. You can be reminded of this as you go to the store and check on the price of eggs. And then you realize how totally out of control you are. You have no control over things. Why are eggs so expensive all of a sudden? Well, as it turns out, a little bit ago, huge, a uh, couple of huge outbreaks of avian flu that killed, I think, over 45 million birds. And all of a sudden, price of eggs is high. We have an egg shortage because tons of chickens, 45 million chickens were killed. And as it turns out, we don't have a whole lot of great replacement for chicken eggs. When you lose eggs, you kind of lose a staple, a foundational thing. And the point I'm making is, and we've experienced for the last couple of years, in the bleak of an eye, the world can change, and we are totally dependent on God sustaining this creation. And if he chooses at a moment to allow certain things to die, we are affected because we're not in control. He is, and we're up to him to create a place for us. And that is what he did in the garden. He created a perfect place for us. So that's what we think of when we think of a garden as this place of, of fertility and life and everything we need is there, and that's exactly true. There's another image that should come to our mind when we think of garden, though. Especially as we read it here in Genesis 2. I, I want you to think... Security, safety, the presence of God. In fact, the word garden comes from the Hebrew word for enclosure. And so when we read garden, we could also read enclosure. This is a place that God had built a contained, safe, perfect dwelling place for humanity and also for God. It was a place where God would dwell with his people. Think about this, the temple in Jerusalem. What is on the walls in the temple in Jerusalem? Does anybody know? Well, there's gold plating, just as there was gold in the garden. And what is carved onto the walls? Palm trees and flowers. In the temple... As God specified it would be made, it was supposed to evoke the idea of a garden. Because that is where God dwells with his people. A holy place, a sacred space where God would be with his people. And humans were intended to live there forever. All they had to do, keep eating the tree of life. There are two trees in that garden. One tree, the tree of life. And the idea is, I think, whenever you eat that tree... Life is continued. It was sustenance. And again, we find that humanity doesn't have life in and of himself. He's dependent on God. God gives him life. Eat of this tree and keep living. But there's another tree, isn't there? A tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, just for a Bible fact, probably not an apple. Probably not an apple tree. That's what we think of. In fact, Michelangelo painted a fig tree on the Sistine Chapel. So there's one theory. could be pomegranate. Who knows? We don't know the fruit. 
We know the nature of the tree. It's this mysterious tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that whoever opened it, or whoever ate of that tree, you'd have their, their minds open, their experience opened. You'd have knowledge of good and evil. What does that mean? Up to that point, humans had only known good. I'll make the case that it probably wasn't a long point. I don't think the fall took long. But before then, up to that point, humanity, Adam and Eve, had only known good. They had known life. That's all they had experienced. But if they ate of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would experience something brand new. Experience or know evil, pain, death. It would open up their experience, but it opened up their experience to all sorts of things that God did not intend for them. You give humans a new dimension they never had before. To know what it was like to choose wrong, evil, death, and sin. And as we think about the existence of that tree, one question comes to mind, and I'm not sure if I totally have the answer to it, but I'm going to explore that here. And the question is, why was that tree there? Why did God put the tree there? Why is there the possibility of eating that tree? We know, we have kids, if you put something in the middle of a room and say, don't touch that, same thing as, don't think about elephants. Well, now I'm thinking about elephants. If you put it there, isn't that what's going to happen? I think the reason that's there is that God is giving us choice. And I think that's the point of verses 15 through 17. God gave us life. He gave us a home. All perfect. And then he gave us choice. He allowed the possibility of rebellion, in fact, the inevitability of rebellion. He gave us choice. God made us independent and responsible moral agents. It is a gift and an obligation. It's part of what makes us human. He gave us choice. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. We see here in verse 15 that God put the man in the garden not just for him to sit around and eat and drink his days away, but God put man in the garden, humanity in this dwelling place to work it and take care of it. Last week was the rest sermon. Here's the work sermon, right? Here's what you're created for, to work, to work it, care for it, to do stuff, to be productive, to be creative. This is why you have that creative drive in you. And all of you do, even if you're not a quote-unquote creative person, I mean, you may not be a painter or a sculptor, but all of you, because you're human, have been given the impetus to be productive in some way, to work and to do. It is part of who you are. It is part of the image of God in you. We have a creative God. He made creative people. And sometimes when we're down and out, it's because we haven't been productive. There, and sometimes we're too productive and need to take a rest. That was last week. This week is work. Because God made you to do it. It's why we find satisfaction and meaning in making and creating. It's because we were created to be productive. 
But you'll notice here, and I want you to know, that this call here to work and to keep the garden is not just about gardening, but it's about building. And in fact, more than that, it's about worship. These two words here that are used to work it and take care of it, those are priestly words. They're words used to describe the duties of the priest in the temple, in the tabernacle. They're elsewhere in Scripture translated to serve and obey. They're worship words. In fact, Deuteronomy 10. Listen to this. This is God speaking to Israel. God tells Israel in Deuteronomy 10 that they are to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. Those two words that are used here in Genesis 2, to work and keep, here they're used to serve the Lord God and to observe the Lord's commands, to serve and to obey, to worship. That's what those words are about. In New Testament language, what this is saying is, all that you do, do it all to the glory of God. That is the idea. The man who was put in the garden, here, build out of it and do all of it in a manner of worship. Work it, keep it, serve, obey. Do all of this in relationship to God and worship him with all that you have been given, all that you have made. So whatever you're doing, whether it's watching grandkids, whether it's running a business, whether it's helping a charity, whether it's playing a sport, whatever you're doing, whatever a culture-making, productive, creative thing you're doing, do it in a manner of worship because that's how we were originally created and destined and designed to do, to serve and obey and worship God. God in this dwelling place, in this place where he's put us. And there's one thing that threatens that perfect worship in all that we do, and that's our choice. God gives the people a command. Don't skip over the first part of the command that's important. What is the first part of the command God gives? It's generous provision. I have given you every tree. I have given you everything. God has withheld nothing. You are not lacking options here in the garden. There's so many things God has given to his people. This is not like trying to find good barbecue on the West Coast. There are options. It's not like trying to find fish in the Midwest. There are good options all over. God has given humanity a world-class buffet in the garden saying, run wild. It's all there for you. Except for one. One tree forbidden. Eat of this tree and death be the consequence. By death, it's not just physical death, it's spiritual death. It's reject the command of God and you'll be separated from him in spiritual death. No longer perfectly dwelling in him, with him in goodness and perfection, but separated because of rebellion. We'll get to Genesis 3, and we know what happens. But we turn to the question, why did God put this there? God gave people choice. And without getting into kind of the philosophy of divine sovereignty and human responsibility and how do those things work together. God is in control and sovereign over all things and we have real choice how those things fit. We can talk about that another day. But here, what is clearly being shown us is that we 
humanity was given a choice, real choice, to either obey or rebel, with consequences for either. Obey, keep eating the tree of life and all other things, and you will have life forever. Rebel, disobey, and death will come. But in that, what God gave us was independence, choice, the actual possibility of going against his will. And I'd say this is part of what makes us human, is that we have this independence, this choice. It's what separates us from the rocks and the animals, is we have the possibility of independent choice. Again, we see this in our kids. My kids do things I would never would have thought of, both good and bad. And every once in a while, my wife and I will look at each other and say, where did that come from? Sometimes it's, they're way nicer than either of us. Sometimes it's, I wouldn't have thought to throw that through that. But they did. And what amazes us about kids is that they just have their own personalities, their independence, they choose for themselves. And that's part of what makes them human. They choose things that are just totally different from us, that seem totally independent, because in some ways they are. They're their own creations, empowered by God, by his grace, given the ability to choose. That has all sorts of infinite implications that we don't have time to get into, but consider this. This is both kind of a warning and an encouragement. People are going to choose for themselves. So do not be surprised or shocked. How could my kid do this? Well, unfortunately, God didn't give you the ability to control them. As hard as you might try. You cannot program people. You can set parameters, you can set consequences, and you should. You can take away options, but in the end, people are people, and they're independent, and that's God-given. It's a good thing, it's not a bad thing. They're independent, and they're going to choose for themselves. So your job as parents, or leaders, or teachers, your job is not to control, to figure out how can I program this person to do exactly what I want them to do so they look like me. No, your job actually is to form, to create options, and help them guide them, and help them make decisions. Because they're independent people. It means that we cannot, and in fact should not, it's a moral violation to coerce or control people. Because people are independent. They have this fundamental independence to them. So to coerce, to control, to enslave is a violation of humanity. So while we have authority as parents or authority as leaders or whatever it may be, we use that in such a way to serve the others so that they may make good and responsible choice, not to coerce, not to control, because that is not how we're created. We set parameters and set restrictions just as God has, but we do that in such a way to develop choice. God has given his people real choice which allows for a real and dynamic relationship with him. In all of his independence, and God is the only one who has total independence, he will display all of his characteristics and all of his glorious attributes, his holiness, his love. And we, as his people, have the option to choose 
to worship him. We have a choice. That choice is God-given, that we might have real loving relationship with him. He gave us a light, he gave us life, he gave us a home. He gave us all that we need to have a real genuine relationship with him to choose him. And we know what has happened. And we'll get there here in a little bit, but we know how the choice goes. Adam, our representative, the head of humanity, made a choice and rebelled against God. And in that choice, all of us with him are wrapped up in that rebellion so that when you and I are born, we have choice, but in some ways we have no choice because we are going to choose to rebel against God. In fact, Scripture calls us slaves to sin because we cannot help but rebel against God. And that would be a really, really hopeless truth if it weren't for the fact that there's another Adam. And scripture says another Adam has come, another representative of humanity. One who did not choose to rebel, but one who chose every time, all throughout his life, to love God perfectly. God sent hope in Jesus Christ who would represent all of us. And Jesus would choose to faithfully follow and love God forever so that we who are in him can actually, truly choose to love God and follow him. And we actually have the perfection of Christ's righteousness and his choice to follow God. We have that in him. In fact, we have the choice if we want, to have Christ as our representative. And in Christ we can choose to have the life and goodness that was lost in the garden. I want to end just putting one thing out that's kind of interesting. Where is this whole thing headed? Think about the location of the garden, the description, the characteristics of it. What was it like? Now, listen to Revelation 22. We've been in the beginning, and listen to the end. This is the end for all those who are in Christ, all those who have chosen to believe in and to follow the only one who made all the right choices. Here's where it ends. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and the servants will serve him. Does that sound familiar? A river, a tree of life bearing fruit. Other parts of Revelation tell us there's gold in the new creation, right? Harkening back to the garden and a secure dwelling place with God where we will worship and serve him just as we were intended to do in the beginning. In Christ, the curse is reversed. We go back to the garden 
not just a garden, but a city, and a place that God and his people have built. It's where it all ends in Jesus Christ. My call to you as a creature dependent on God who has independent choice to choose and worship the God who made us. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you this morning that you made us independent creatures. And that's kind of in some ways a... paradox, that we were created wholly and totally dependent upon you, and yet you have given us genuine and real choice. And all of that is given by your grace, Lord. And we pray that we would praise your name, worship you forever, because you are a good God who made us and has given us everything we need, and you have given us the ultimate thing we need, salvation in Jesus Christ, who was hanged on the true tree of life, and tasted death because of the choices we made. Lord, may we eat from that tree of life forever and have a perfect, loving relationship with our Creator once again. Thank you, Lord, that this is our hope in your Son. Amen.